Times, uh, and I'm here to moderate the second section of the day, which is um, on the relationship, uh, on what Brexit has done uh, to the civil service, Whitehall, and what it means for the future of public bodies, and so on in the UK. Um, we have an absolutely excellent panel uh, to discuss this subject at a really apposite time. Uh, Lord O'Donnell, first of all, uh, over here, former cabinet secretary, uh, leading one of the two or three leading figures in the civil service, I would say, in the last 20 or 30 years. Cabinet secretary under how many prime ministers? Three. Three. Um, Nicky Morgan, uh, MP for Loughborough, former secretary of state for education, uh, chair of the Treasury Select Committee not supporting any particular candidate at this stage in the Conservative leadership election, I think it's important to say. Um, and third, and not least, uh, Jill Rutter, leading expert on Brexit from the Institute for Government, somebody I regularly phone up to explain what on earth is going on. Uh, she often gives a very, always gives a very, very good answer. Um, it's a pleasure that you're, that you're all here. Just by way of introduction, for me as a journalist, if I can say 30 seconds on that, the issues that are of interest to me um, at this particular stage, three broad questions, I would say, but there will be others that the panel will want to discuss. First of all, the relationship between political masters and civil servants, the issue front and centre after everything we've seen over the, uh, over the resignation of Kim Darroch, but also a lot of the tensions involving figures like Ollie Robbins and Ivan Rogers over the last few years. What is the situation now vis-a-vis -vis having a civil service in which um, civil servants are politically um, apolitical and speak truth to political masters? I, I very much hope we can have a discussion about that. I think the second question, broad question, which is on my mind, is what is the shape of Whitehall going to be, the shape of the civil service, if there is a deal, if, if one of the two candidates manages to get, a, in the Conservative and Leadership Contest, manages to get a deal at the end of this year, how should Whitehall and how should the relationship with public body, bodies be reconfigured? There was an enormous amount of upheaval in 2016, but what do we need to see in the future? And I think a third question that's on my mind is, what is the morale of the civil service? So the civil service is going through an extraordinary upheaval into, because of Brexit, in particular because of no-deal planning. The IFG, uh, Jill's think tank, has done a lot of reporting on how civil servants are being moved to and fro in and out of no-deal preparations. What does this mean? Is there a brain drain happening, as Camilla Cavendish suggested in a piece in the FT on, on Saturday? Those are the three broad questions I, I have, but there will be others. Uh, Gus O'Donnell, can I come to you first? How, how would you address some of the issues that are up that are front and centre at the moment on the civil service. Certainly, and I think that, that relationship with central civil service is absolutely crucial, but it, it's good that we've got this panel. So I'll concentrate on the, senior, the civil service. Jill will talk about relationship with public bodies. Uh, don't think, I don't think that's important by not mentioning it, but it's, it's huge, and to be honest, Jill knows a lot more than I do. So that's kind of useful. And, to have a former colleague from the political side here as well is really important because the relationship with Parliament and select committees and all the rest of it is hugely important. I won't cover that. Point about the civil service. <clears throat> I think we have to do a little bit of context here. We have gone through a period where uh, the nation, let's face it, is divided. We had a referendum, 52-48. We spent many years trying to get a deal with the EU uh, that can get through Parliament, and basically that process has stalled, let's put it that way. Uh, 
It's been nice. Throughout that period, the civil service has been trying, as you said, James, to basically speak truth unto power. That means actually analysing the evidence, going at it, using its values of honesty, objectivity, integrity, impartiality. That sometimes means people are told things they don't really like. And that's where, if ever there was an ear, uh, a situation where psychologists will go back and say, uh, do you want to know about confirmation bias? Well, let me explain how confirmation bias works, right? Everybody reads the things they prior, have prior belief in and nobody really challenges. So, so I spend my time <coughs> reading things by people that think it's going to be fantastic when we leave because I think it's really, really important that you look at both sides and you stop yourself. So we've got confirmation bias, we've got strong beliefs, and the thing that are, uh, and strong prior beliefs, which may or may not be based on evidence, but are passionately held. Uh, and you've got a situation where there is questioning of experts and what constitutes actual evidence. And that's, that's quite difficult for a civil service. You are trying to put together the analysis of what does a trade deal look like. You're trying to analyse uh, what the impact of the EU has been on the UK economy in order to understand the, as it were, the counterfactual, so you know the, how to compare the changes. And, you know, I think one of the people who put that together rather well, and I don't think enough people have read this, is Nick Crafts, Professor of Economic History at Warwick, who's done some really good analysis, economic analysis, of the impact of being in the EU, which allows us to have that counterfactual, then we can compare it with the other things. So I think that evidence has been uh, big. In terms of things James said about individual representatives, um, yeah, you mentioned Ivan Rogers and Ollie Robbins, who've been put in the difficult situation of having to tell political masters the realities, their interpretation of the EU side. And quite often in the UK, I get quite frustrated, we do see this very much as something about what we want. And it takes two to tango. And you have to understand what the EU wants. I've just been, spent the morning planning a trip to Singapore to talk about what future trade relations might be. But one of the great things about being there is to get people from Singapore, Australia, India to be talking about what they want of future relationships. So we, we need to make sure we get that balance between the two. Um, Ollie and I, have been, I think, have been at the heart of trying to sort out these negotiations and have quite often had to say, I'm sorry, Minister, but actually that's not going to be agreed to by the EU. And that's quite a difficult thing to get across. <clears throat> there seems to me to have been uh, some, as it were, wishful thinking about the fact that the, for the EU to negotiate a position, there are 27 countries, and therefore it will be very hard for them to come up with a considered position. Um, and that's turned out not to be true. Right. And, and to be honest, those of us like Ivan, who's spent years, I've been to more ECOFINs and European councils than I care to mention. You know that in the end, this, this group, that's what they do. That's what the whole of the EU is about. You know? And it is now rather dominated by the Eurozone countries and will be more dominated by the Eurozone countries. Because surprise, surprise, uh, once we have left, the Eurozone becomes the key part of the EU which again, nobody's really talking about. So our people in Brussels are explaining these points. And quite often, I'm, I fear the messenger has been shot. 
in all of this. Uh, in terms of what the civil service does, I think it's absolutely essential we carry on saying this, and it's essential that people like me as former cabinet secretaries defend our colleagues and defend that fundamental nature of speaking truth unto power. And whether that's about Brexit negotiations, whether it's about, as an ambassador, your interpretation of the competence of a foreign government that you're dealing with, all of those things, really important. Of course, it's important that those things are conducted within a safe space. And I hope to goodness we will find out who leaked those documents. And evisceration would be far too soft a punishment, in my view. I'm looking for something more. Um, in terms of the other things you mentioned, shape of the civil service post-Brexit. Um, I, I wasn't a particularly strong fan of the shape of the civil service for the Brexit negotiations. Uh, I didn't think that really worked. Uh, personally, when I talked about those negotiations we have with the EU 27, we have uh, an equal but smaller problem on the, e on the UK side of how do we get a considered position for the UK government, given all the departments coming at things from a different place. Traditionally, the Cabinet Office has always done that. We've come up with a position through the classic meetings that were bi-weekly in the Cabinet Office, where we've got everybody around the table, and we've gone to those negotiations in a very strong position. And I think our EU partners have always seen us as very well organised on that front. So we have a position. It's tricky, and it's, it's become trickier post-evolution. But we've got there. Uh, to then have a separate department dealing with this creates all sorts of tensions with the Cabinet Office, particularly when ultimately, as I think we're beginning to realise, you know, the, the individuals can sort out some of the detail, then it gets to the hard crunches, and that's where it's heads of government sitting around an EU table sorting these things out at an EU council. That's what happens. It's the Merkels, the Macrons, the Mays, the whoever next. That's what really uh, matters. So shape of civil service post-Brexit, I would definitely say um, we should um, fold Dexu into uh, the Cabinet Office. Uh, and we should think hard about, uh, depending on what the nature of the post-Brexit deal is, uh, how we manage the future, because I'm sure everybody in this room knows we're dealing with a small fraction of the issues at the moment. We're dealing with the withdrawal agreement, right? Uh, and we've got a political declaration on the other bit. But the, but the other bit happens to be the EU-UK trade relationship. That's massive, complex. It'll take years. I've mentioned Greenland before, you know, and they only have fish. Um, it will, uh, and, then, and then, of course, there are the, the deals, potential deals with other countries, which, again, are complex and require us to confront, you know, those issues where, you know, where do other countries have a comparative advantage? Where are the biggest gains? Well, actually, it turns out, I'd say things like agriculture. Talking to Australians and New Zealanders uh, earlier this morning, um, and that creates quite a lot of domestic political issues. So that's not going to be straightforward. But there are, you know, that is a fast-growing part of the world, so there are issues. Final point I'll mention, you mentioned morale of the, uh, uh, the civil service. Uh, you know what? I, I'd come back to where I started, evidence base, right? 
So, what, so fortunately, and God bless the Institute for Government for uh, the work they do on this, we can actually answer these questions with evidence. We, uh, in my day, we started the civil service survey, people survey, so we have a massive sample, and we can ask civil servants how they're feeling about things. We can ask them about their well-being, which is another thing we might come on to. Um, uh, you know, so we've got time series, so we can monitor uh, morale, so I would basically say, let's look at the evidence, let's see what's happening. What I think... I do have a kind of very hidden insight into this in that my daughter works in the civil service, so, you know, uh, I have a very timely thing. What's happening in civil service, remember, is quite a radical change. In my day, the numbers were coming down, kind of uniformly, lowest size civil service since the Second World War, mainly as a result of digitisation, improvements in efficiency, all those sorts of things. That's reversed, right? Brexit has meant big increase in numbers, big increase in opportunities, uh, you take something like DEFRA. I mean, DEF, it's incredibly complicated what you've got to do on fisheries and agriculture. Incredibly politically sensitive. Yeah. Um, so select committees will rightly require us to uh, answer questions on, well, what does this mean for this and that? And these are difficult questions. So there's lots of opportunities that have risen up. People are being moved around. And yes, let's admit there are skills gaps, most certainly. And uh, we are starting to get into areas we haven't been in before. So that's a, a complicated process for the civil service, but it's new challenges, and that's what civil servants love. So there's really big issues, they're really important, and so I think from a civil service point of view, that's the kind of work part, which remember for most of them is the really important part. When they look up and see um, situations where that, as I call it, the kind of implicit contract between civil service and ministers starts to break down, where... I'd always taken the view, and this is something I, I mentioned recently at uh, my late successor's uh, memorial, Jeremy Haywood. Basically, our job is to, you know, uh, the deal really is we will speak truth unto power, we'll try to get our honest, objective evidence before ministers, then they will make their decision. And that may not be the decision that we would have liked or, or thought was the right one, but once it's made, it's our job to get on and implement it as effectively as possible. That's the deal from the civil service side. That's the strength of a strong, impartial civil service that, remember, the only official rankings we've got from the Blavatnik School show the civil service as number one in the world, right? Which I'm very proud of, but it wasn't done on my watch. <laughs> it's done by Jeremy. Um, so uh, that's the deal. And in return for that, we ask of ministers uh, respect for the civil service, um, not blaming them for things that, you know, they're, uh, because serving civil servants, it's right, they won't fight back. Um, so I think that deal with all the best ministers, and we have one to my right, was preserved and never questioned. Unfortunately, some feel that uh, this is a path they want to go down. And I think that's a a rather silly path, and it just damages them. Hopefully, it won't damage the civil service, which I think has been around for a long time and is getting bigger and bigger. Thank so you I'll leave it at that. Nikki, would you like to? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Follow, uh, follow Gus to be part of this um, August panel, and I want to pay tribute as well to the UK and a changing Europe, which I think has done really important work for the last few years and your publications are um, consulted in Parliament and outside and are appreciated. Actually, in terms of communicating with constituents, I have sent links to quite a lot of your documents uh, in order to help to explain some of the things like 
why a no-deal Brexit may be a little more challenging than some of them think, for example. Um, I wanted to talk uh, about, um, yes, the relationship, obviously, between select committees and uh, public uh, bodies. And you're right, guys, I mean, Parliament is itself a public body, and this has placed uh, Parliament and parliamentary relations and the concept of representative democracy under enormous strain over the last three years, and I suspect we're about to see those tensions come back again in uh, <clears throat> September and um, October. Now, obviously, the Treasury Set Committee, I say we've got three main areas of work. We've obviously got our regular scrutiny of the, the various public bodies. Uh, we've got other inquiries. We're able to, to, you know, topical inquiries, able to pick. But, of course, we've had Brexit. Uh, and that's been ongoing um, since before the, the referendum, um, but particularly, obviously, in the last three years. And we decided the head of the meaningful vote, uh, we didn't realise there were going to be three of them, and we're still going, potentially, uh, that uh, we would ask, the, particularly the Bank of England, but also the Treasury, to uh, prepare some economic analysis on likely uh, Brexit outcomes and scenarios and submit them to us. Now, I don't think either institution, and we, the FCA did their bit as well on financial services, um, uh, and, of course, we scrutinised the work of HMRC, very important in all of this as well. I, I don't think it would be fair to say that um, either the Bank of England or the Treasury were delighted at that request um, because they knew some of the pitfalls ahead, but they did absolutely, very professionally, the job that we had asked uh, of them. Um, and we asked them uh, for analysis on short-term and long-term impacts, as I say, of the various possible uh, outcomes. Um, and the Bank of England and the FCA did the analysis on the short-term impact of, on the economy and financial services, and the government provided analysis on the potential long-term macroeconomic um, uh, impacts. And I really wanted to pick up what, what Gus was saying there, though, because I think what's happened to some of these public bodies, because they have been giving um, a view, not even an opinion, but a view, their professional expert view, on something which so many people feel so very, very strongly about, they have had to become perhaps more political and have been politicised in a way that they would not have expected. Now, leaving aside having um, members of the uh, various policy committees of the Bank of England or, or officials in the Treasury being asked questions which are more properly directed at ministers, because frankly you can't get answers out of ministers as to what might happen in terms of Brexit uh, negotiations. Um, but I think Gus is right. In many cases this has been deliberately done. And the trouble and the consequences, as I know, to my cost as well, um, is that it is not acceptable, for example, for the head of HMRC to give off his perfectly proper professional expert opinion on what the cost might be for business if you impose new customs checks, and for them to have you know, personal threats as a result of that, necessitating the calling in of the police. And we know that's happened as well in the civil service. Um, this is deliberately done. It is deliberately done by the forces of populism who are trying to shut down debate. Um, it mainly comes from those who are deeply pro-Brexit and very critical of what they see as project fear in the run-up to June 2016. Um, but there are people on the other side who feel uh, strongly, but, but just not liking anything like uh, the numbers. And I think what's happened is that um, people such as the Governor of the Bank of England, who's been a frontline person before, but really when you're talking about interest rates or inflation, suddenly becomes frontline in terms of how Brexit might unfold and what that might mean for our economy in a way that that's not happened before. Um, obviously, the, uh, the, the head of the FCA, there's a, there's a financial services, a big part of our economy, services generally. Um, and frankly, we did not have enough detail from the government about what they wanted. I was pushing for a white paper on financial services or services more generally, head of the, uh, the checkers um, uh, agreement or, or, or deal, um, and we didn't get it. Um, but also, say, uh, HMRC um, and obviously the, the Treasury as well. 
And what's happened is that we have found with witnesses, either those or others, giving us evidence, often on other unrelated to Brexit issues, their views on Brexit are then quoted back at them, um, either by members of the, the, the committee who feel strongly on these issues, uh, or people outside, um, and are then used to criticise the behaviour. I did raise this for the Liaison Committee at the House of Commons, that I thought we ought to set out a statement as select committee chairs, that actually people should not, you know, we need, in the same way uh, that the civil service have to be able to speak truth to power, we need people as select committees, if we're going to function really effectively, to give us unvarnished evidence. Um, just occasionally we're asked to keep things highly confidential for market-sensitive reasons, and I completely understand that, but by and large I want people's evidence to be out there and for them to feel confident that in giving it, they are giving Parliament the benefit of their expertise and that we will treat that evidence and expertise in an appropriate fashion. And most of the time, that is what's happened. But there have been times when some witnesses have come under a sustained barrage of attacks because of their perceived views on Brexit. And I don't think that does. It doesn't stand Parliament in good stead. It doesn't do the select committee system any good. And it's unfair on those who really are doing uh, their jobs. Um, the other impact is on Parliament itself, obviously, as a, a, a public body. And speaking as a former minister... Um, I suspect that many of my ministerial uh, colleagues, um, particularly those who are not in Brexit-related or frontline Brexit departments, are deeply frustrated about the lack of progress, not helped, of course, by the 2017 general election result, but the lack of a majority and the focus on Brexit has meant that so much other stuff has not got done. And I think, frankly, the country is deeply, deeply fed up and frustrated with that as well, when they can see all the other uh, challenges. I have to say at the moment, I think the select committees are the one place where Parliament is working. I think we've just celebrated our 40th anniversary. If you look at the, the wide spectrum of reports and work that is still happening under the select committee uh, system, I think we are doing our job. We are holding people to account. We are producing interesting reports. We are making our recommendations to government and to other public bodies. But frankly, until we are able to resolve at least this first stage of Brexit, and I'm not entirely sure, as I said on the radio last night, what resolution now looks like in a way. I know I have my version of resolution. That's the problem. Everyone has their version of what they'd like this first stage to be resolved to, to, to look like. But until we can get there in some way, shape or form, it's going to be very difficult to start planning. The final thing I'd say is that we're doing an inquiry on the future of financial services. Again, you know, it's a massive part of our economy. Financial services are huge taxpayers which fund all our public services um, uh, that we need to be uh, properly funded. It's very difficult. I think this is one of the things that's most affecting the country at the moment. It's very difficult when you can't look to the future and predict. And I think that's what's driving now the public sentiment of we just want a decision. In a way, people do care what the decision is, but they also just want to know what the parameters are going to be, particularly if you're in business, so you're able to make some decisions about the future even if the consequences of that decision are going to be pretty rough for yourself, your employees, the business sector that you are operating in. And select committees should be helping people to plan for the future and shining a spotlight on the issues which government departments and other public bodies need to think about for the future. But it's very, very difficult to do at the moment when the future seems so very uncertain. So many challenges uh, there, um, uh, but I think the select committees, my colleagues on select committees, are very much rising to the occasion. Okay, as I'm going last, I'm going to make a couple of comments on, uh, on what's gone before. Uh, so, uh, we totally agree with Gus that creating DexU was always a mistake. Indeed, we have a report which possibly had the shortest shelf life of any report ever, <laughs> which we published on the day Andrea Ledson stood down from the Conservative leadership saying, whatever you do, 
don't create a uh, freestanding department for exiting the EU. Uh, so that's allowed us to bask in schadenfreude <laughs> ever since um, when we see some of those tensions. Yeah, I don't think the government's made a mistake actually thinking Dexio is the right place to coordinate the future trade relations. We have to remember it's actually not just a trade relationship we've been negotiating in phase two, it's also a security partnership. And I think that put, means putting it in a line department is even more problematic. And I agree with Gus that actually the civil service has problems. And one problem, I think, is that the civil service is comfortable with the language of evidence, which largely it interprets as economic evidence. And actually, to many extents, Brexit is a values project. Mm. And I think those mm. two cultures are clashing quite badly, and we see that. And third, I just want to pay tribute to select committees. The government has been very reluctant to share any of its analysis about the consequences of Brexit and parliamentary select committees have, I think, really shown the hugely valuable role they can play in uh, furnishing a lot of us with evidence which we can then repackage uh, to James and his friends as think tank <laughs> reports. So thank you very much for, for that. I want to extend beyond the civil service into what uh, Gus's successor, but to Mark Sedwell, refers to as the wider public service. So going beyond the civil service and looking at uh, public bodies, those are those sort of bodies which we might call non-ministerial departments, that's actually HMRC, a non-ministerial department, uh, executive NTPPs, um, some executive agencies, etc. Um, some are public corporations or whatever, but these are the sort of things that the term of art is usually quango. Um, so the government came in in 2010 promising uh, the almost inevitable bonfire of quangos, uh, and at one level, Brexit is uh, turning that bonfire into a bonanza for quangos, because just as Gus has said that, uh, that Brexit has meant a handbrake turn on the reduction in civil service numbers, it's meaning the same for many public bodies, because they're actually in the front line both of Brexit preparation and will be in the front line of post-Brexit delivery. So Nikki referred to some of the work that the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulatory Authority and the Bank of England are having to do in the run-up to Brexit to ensure that our financial institutions can weather the shock of a disorderly Brexit, but they're not the only ones affected. So if I just run through some of the examples. So there are public bodies that will have to do more as a result of Brexit. So look at the Competition and Markets Authority. At the moment, it shares a caseload with the uh, Competition Committee Commission in the EU. Uh, those will all come to the CMA after Brexit. The MHRA uh, at the moment shares some of the sort of responsibility for testing with the European Medicines Agency. Depending on our future relationship with the EU, it might have to uh, supervise all testing in the UK on new medical treatments. Um, there are new regulatory activities. So the Health and Safety Executive with the Environment Agency are taking on the uh, regulation of uh, chemicals. The Office of Nuclear Regulation is taking over from Euratom to supervise nuclear facilities. There are new activities. Um, there is an embryonic shadow trade remedies authority that uh, is being set up to run the UK's trade defence policy, which will be a consequence of leaving the EU Customs Union. Unfortunately, it isn't a legal entity yet, because that requires the passage of the Trade Bill, which is one of the many bills held hostage in Parliament, yeah. uh, because the laws has put down lots of clauses the government doesn't like, which means that <laughs> even though it's been knocking around in Parliament for the best part of a year and a half, it's not come back to the Commons, uh, Commons yet. So the 
Uh, Trade Remedies Authority is now operating as the Trade Remedies Investigation Directorate as part of the Department of International Trade using powers that the government got through the Customs Bill, which conveniently didn't have to go to the Lords because that, uh, that benefited from the way in which we treat finance bills. Um, and then there are plans for big new bodies to supervise government after Brexit. So Michael Gove, if he survives as Environment Secretary, has incredibly ambitious proposals to create an Office of Environmental Protection, which slightly bizarrely will be the Office for Environmental Protection for England and Northern Ireland. And we are promised separate OEPs for Scotland and Wales. Go figure. That's partly because there isn't a government that can legislate in Northern Ireland at the moment. Um, partly because Michael Gove invented his OEP for England only and then said to the devolves, if you'd like to play ball, come along and join in. Rather than saying, actually, it makes much more sense to set this up on a full nation basis. Why don't we talk from scratch about how we might do that? Uh, so what are the challenges they face? I think there are four big challenges. The first is a management challenge. Uh, these bodies are sitting there, but they don't know when they have to take on those new, new functions. Um, so it's quite difficult. You've recruited a bunch of staff who thought they might have to swing into action on the 30th of March. Uh, they then thought they might have to swing into action on the 13th of April. Uh, they might now be needed on the 1st of November. They might need, be needed a couple of weeks later than that. Who knows? Uh, on the current plan for the implementation period, they will be needed on the 1st of January 2021, but I don't think anyone in government really thinks that's long enough as an implementation period. Nobody's quite admitted that uh, yet, so it might be January 2023, or it might actually be never, because that really depends on the state of our future relationship with the EU. So that's quite a difficult thing to do, to get people ready to go, but actually possibly kicking their heels for three and a half years. And there won't be as much sport to watch uh, on TV. Well, that anyway, she has, I had to get a reference <laughs> in somewhere. Second, there's a capacity challenge. These are by and large functions that we have looked to the EU to do. And we can't just invent that expertise overnight, particularly not when it's actually harder for us to acquire uh, expertise from one of the places we might have done it, which is the EU, when we are making the UK seem a slightly unwelcoming environment for people. And one of the things we're seeing is a bit of a battle for expertise between, uh, between government departments and their ALBs. If you heard Tony Juniper on the farming programme this morning, he was talking about how Natural England, one of DEFRA's ALBs, has been hollowed out as people have been sucked into the core department to fill expertise gaps there. The third one is a devolution challenge. These problems are multiplied if we insist that every country has their own special little arrangement. That's not happening in all cases. may not be the most sensible way, but there is a potential role for those uh, for public bodies to help glue back uh, what the politicians insist on sort of driving apart. But I think the biggest challenge lots of public bodies will face is a sort of expectations or a credibility challenge. Being members of the EU means that people, particularly NGOs, citizens, have been able to look to Europe for redress against the government. Uh, the EU has been able to take enforcement action against the UK government, and indeed ministers have often been able to blame the EU uh, for things that they don't like. Down the line, the UK is trying to replicate some of those through domestic bodies, but domestic bodies can never have the same status as the EU as we are discovering. It is quite difficult to uh, get yourself out of the jurisdiction 
of the EU. It's not something you do overnight, whereas ministers uh, in 2010 actually proposed that they could abolish um, public bodies, even those set up by primary legislation, by statutory instruments. Um, the House of Lords said no, so they were forced to drop that schedule to the bill. Um, but primary legislation can undo public bodies. We see that time and time again. So public bodies in the UK always have to tread a line between looking to the politics on one side and looking to actually fulfill those duties. Uh, that brings me to the sort of final point. It's possible that public bodies will be entrenched through international agreements, and that might give them a bit more status to exercise those functions against the government. But I think one thing Brexit should get us to do is to look again at our very casual and cavalier attitude towards the status of public bodies and whether it's really, really right that we have such a sort of ad hoc, random approach to the way in which we classify public bodies, the powers we give them, and to their status in our constitution. Back in 2010, we wrote a report at the Institute for Government called Read Before Burning and suggested actually we needed a way of creating special status for those public interest bodies that are supposed to protect the citizen in the UK uh, against some of the temporary whims of government. And I think it might be a good occasion with Brexit to look again at whether we don't need to do that. for questions. Perhaps I could start off by, start off by putting a few to me, of, of my own to the panel, but perhaps later on if you could signal to me uh, if you would like to ask one and, and who you are. Um, first of all, Nicky Morgan, can I ask you a question? I don't think anybody here would disagree with what he said, that it's appalling that leading civil servants like John Thompson of HMRC face death threats and others have been victimised uh, because they spoke truth about the situation regarding Brexit. But one of the arguments that's made, it's made by Dave Penman of the FDA, for example, is that the reason we've got into this mess is that the Prime Minister herself has never really stood up and defended the civil servant, service, civil service at the key moments. I can myself never remember a moment in the last few years where Mrs May has said, Ollie Robbins is the advisor, I and the Cabinet decide. Do you accept that, uh, that, that criticism? Well, I accept that, that obviously if that's how um, people feel, uh, then, you know, it's a, it's a very unfortunate, um, a, you know, perception. I mean, I would honestly need to go and look. I mean, I think if you would have Theresa May sitting here, I'm pretty sure she would say that she felt she had done that, um, whether it was PMQs or, or anything like that. Um, but I think it goes back really to the heart of um, what we saw last week with Sir Kim Darroch, which was, again, when somebody is under attack, um, I think it, it absolutely the leading politicians have to come out very swiftly uh, and say, um, it, you know, that actually um, it's, it, you know, the, the, it's for ministers and politicians to be criticised. That's what we sign up for, uh, not for those who are trying to uh, and doing their jobs uh, by saying what might be uncomfortable truths, some of which um, are, um, are open and transparent if it's evidence of select committee. Uh, others, of course, in terms of ambassadorial uh, diptels, should not be splashed all over the, the newspapers. Um, but I, I mean, I think I'm sure Theresa May would feel that she um, would agree with that sentiment. She would feel that civil servants um, uh, should be protected from um, 
you know, they're not the frontline people. Uh, I think she'd be surprised if she felt that hadn't been said, but I think with all these things, you can never say them too often. Jill, can I see you shaking your head? Well, I think, I think it has been one of the slightly uh, lamentable things about Theresa May that I think she hasn't explicitly done that. Um, she is, was quoted, I think, in The Spectator as saying to the 1922 committee, I am not Ollie Robbins' puppet, but that's not quite the same thing as defending... Ollie Robbins against those attacks. And I think, uh, so that's the sort of sin of omission. I think the sin of commission over which she presided was her advisor's briefing against Ivan Rogers, which is what, after all, made Ivan's position untenable. And actually, I think that's one of the things we have to remember about number 10, uh, or indeed ministers, when their special advisors do things, they do things within an authorising environment created by their minister and special advisors only act uh, under the sort of guidance or whatever within what they think those ministers want to do. Um, and I think that briefing against Ivan Rogers, a very early signal that uh, saying this was going to be difficult, advising it could take a long time, advising, as Gus said, not on what the UK was doing, but what the EU would say about what the UK was not at all helpful. It was very notable when DexU was set up there are a lot of incredibly good people who went to DexU. I mean, the whole idea that the civil service wouldn't want to work on Brexit, I think, was completely confounded by the quality of the people who went to DexU. But DexU was very notable for the fact that it was almost a badge of honour that you had to not be an EU expert, apart from the few people who went over from the European Secretariat in the Cabinet Office. You know, you, these were people who were great civil servants, but they were not the top uh, EU experts. And there was a sense that knowledge and long uh, periods of working on EU issues almost disqualified you and made you sort of suspicious that you would not be on board with the project. And I think that was, uh, that was a sort of even worse in a sense than not defending Ollie Robbins. It was absolutely clear that, you know, the Prime Minister, it's the Prime Minister's deal. Bernard Jenkins, I think, has said that it's the Prime Minister's deal. It's not Ollie Robbins' deal. And anything else uh, to the contrary is, uh, is a ridiculous thing to say. Can I put a question to you, Gus O'Donnell? Uh, um, most people would accept that most civil servants are fiercely independent, non-partisan, and doing their level best to get Brexit done. A criticism that was made by Bernard Jenkin in a piece he wrote for the FT on, on, online this morning was, however, and he accepted that with broad points, but he was saying there are too many former permanent secretaries and some former cabinet secretaries who are going around publicly criticizing Brexit in general. And that is creating a public impression that the civil service isn't with the project. Is that a fair criticism or not? I think <clears throat> we have to realize that the world is moving on. And when you leave the civil service, curiously enough, you cease to be a civil servant, right? It's <laughs> uh, this kind of blatantly obvious, but um, uh, so I was put in the House of Lords to have a view and to speak as a crossbencher, truth unto power, publicly. And so I have voted in the House of Lords. Jill referred to something I'm quite proud of, which was a bit on public bodies, uh, amendment, which the House of Lords did some time ago, and I think I um, actually tabled that one. I thought you were still cabinet secretary then, Gus, but right. anyway. Um, <laughs> no, there was, well, there was one that came up in the House of Lords, which I remember, it was oh, possibly right. later, sorry. Um, so uh, I think we are in a world where uh, you, when you cease uh, to be a civil servant, you do not join a monastery, 
curiously enough. Uh, you just do not cease to have any views. If, if you are in the House of Lords, you're making speeches, you're voting on things, I think it's perfectly legitimate for former civil servants to have a view. Uh, they have a lot of expertise. Uh, yes, we're invited on to talk about issues like former diplomats, talk about issues of foreign policy. Uh, I, yes, I will always go out there and defend the civil service against attacks on them if I feel that uh, that's appropriate. I think that's part of my job. Uh, it's my ongoing uh, part of having been cabinet secretary. I think you have a responsibility to do that. Uh, so uh, I think that's the world we're in, and I think it's, it's absolutely right. You would not expect uh, former ministers to suddenly decide they weren't going to say anything about yeah. what they've been minister yeah. for. I mean, that would be crazy. So I think it's, it's really important. It's really important that when we go out there and we say things, what we are defending is a politically impartial civil service. That's what we're talking about. And we think that's hugely important. And you know, the more we can do to strengthen that, the better. Let me ask you just one, one other thing. Another point that's made by the Brexters, because I think we have to get, try and get their arguments in. Um, we're moving into a period, assuming a deal is done and Brexit happens, we're going to move into a new phase in which this country is going to be fighting tooth and nail, tooth and claw, to, to get trade deals. We're, a tra getting trade deals done around the world is going to be really important. And therefore, we move to being a bit more, in, we move into being a bit more of a kind of sales mode, if you like. And that means that there is a case, perhaps, for having ambassadors out there who are selling the product rather than just having as their main focus advising back to the UK. Why don't we have a few more political appointments as ambassadors. We only have one at the moment. Simon MacDonald, when he was giving evidence to the FAC last week, said, from his knowledge of Israel, he was ambassador there, that the Israelis allow a maximum of 11 political appointments to foreign embassies abroad. Why don't we move, isn't there room to perhaps move to a little bit more of a kind of front foot political mode in the way, say, the Foreign Office operates? So, so there are two issues there. One is, why don't uh, uh, our ambassadors sell the UK more? Yes? That's the argument that's made. So, uh, and I would think if there were an ambassador sitting here, they'd say, yes, that is part of my job, and that's what they do. And curiously enough, what governments want, and what uh, other businesses say, or, you know, I've, I've worked in the embassy in Washington twice. Uh, what you're getting is people saying to you, we want to understand... Uh, you know, in terms of business dealings with the UK, what the government thinks. You know, they can get to know what business thinks and, and where it's something like the US, it's all very open and very market-oriented. In lots of other countries, you're dealing with uh, our exporters wanting to understand precisely how do we get into China. You know, it's not a same kind of market-based economy. Sometimes you need various other skills and actually, those are the skills of a diplomat who understands governments, who understands different forms of government regime. So I would say, in all of these things, I'm all for meritocracy. Let's get the best person for the job. Uh, but let's understand what the requirements of that job are. If you put someone in who is a businessman, who doesn't know anything very strongly about how UK government operates, doesn't actually know how to get messages back effectively into UK government, then they might not actually be very effective. There are some, I'd say, you know, who, who could, and we've certainly had political appointments. I, I listened to Peter Jay on the radio the other day talking about um, 
the number of uh, ambassadors to the US that we've had that have been not from the Foreign Office. And, you know, they've got a mixed record, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, so I, I would just say best person for the job. I wouldn't rule out uh, political appointments, but uh, I would just say let's be absolutely clear what the criteria are for this. And certainly in a future world, uh, if, it's, if there's a lot more about negotiating trade deals, well, then let's get, you know, let's have, have that as a bigger weight in terms of who we select. So someone that knows more about trade, most certainly. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean immediately flipping to someone on the political mm. scene. might mean moving to someone yeah. from the yeah. business Absolutely. sector and someone who actually had some experience of working in the public sector and the private sector would be great. Let me open it up to you, please. Uh, thank you very much, Keith Best, former MP. I'd like to come back to two points you made, James, and I know they've been articulated to a certain extent, but just to delve a little bit more into it. First of all, the whole question of trade negotiations. We haven't really had to negotiate trade treaties for 40 years, uh, and so there is a dearth of people competent to do that. And I'm afraid what's coming out of the recent visit of Liam Fox and his team to the United States shows that the United States negotiators are running rings around us there, quite frankly. And I don't know if that's an unfair comment, but it's certainly my, my impression. The second thing is um, having people in positions uh, abroad and, of course, it's now going to have to include EU countries, so we're going to have to boost all those embassies very dramatically if we come out of the EU. But it's also the question of Africa. You know, I'm told French embassies are crawling with economic counsellors and, and people who are really uh, skilled at negotiating with local suppliers and things like that and bringing trade back to France. And we usually, you know, have one or two ambassadors, staff or attaches there and nothing like that. Where are we going to get these people from? I mean, this should have been thought about, frankly, years ago, certainly three years ago, but where are we going to get those people from and what plan has the civil service or should the civil service have for actually training up indigenously a whole series of people, not just to fill our embassies in the way I've described, but also to be effective negotiators on trade treaties? Well, just the first part of it, which is, I think, because um, I think probably Gus or Jill are better about the sort of the, the staffing up of the um, embassies and everything. Although, all I would say is on my visits to overseas embassies, there is a lot of evidence about the selling that is already going on about um, you know, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, um, and um, you know everything in between, and all the you know, many businesses, all the trade missions, and everything else. I think you make a really good point, though, Keith, and I've said this before about um, how we are going to handle civil service, but also parliament, um, the whole issue of trade negotiations. I don't think we realise at the moment how much time this is going to take up in terms of parliamentary scrutiny. We had a little flavour of it a couple of years ago when TTIP was talked about and obviously you know, mass public campaigns about the NHS, which we saw come back as a very live issue when Donald Trump visited us, what, two months ago. Um, and, um, and that's the sort of you know, um, issue that's going to keep uh, coming up that the government's going to have to, to handle. Um, MPs are going to be thinking about their own areas, as we see often particularly with sort of US um, uh, representatives as well. You know, what am I going to get 
in terms of the, what's the trade you're going to say that's going to benefit my constituency that I represent. And we've had a debate in the select committees about how we're going to scrutinise all these, these trade deals. You know, the Department for International Trade Select Committee, are they the best place? You know, do we have to, obviously, if it relates to services or financial services, do you parcel it out to the other select committees? I don't think we've got, we haven't got to a place yet because the trouble is we're still obsessing about stage one. You know, um, so the civil service, I mean, does recognise exactly the capacity gap you've identified. So they are actually doing some things. Um, they appointed an external chief trade negotiator, Crawford Faulkner's, in the Department of International Trade. They are creating a trade profession. Uh, but there's a bit of an issue with sort of civil service professions and quite how meaningful are they? Is this just how you badge yourself when you happen to be, you know, landed on that seat for that sort of small period of time, or do you actually do what you really need, which is a sort of cadre of people who are incentivised to stick with it? The first, um, uh, first permanent secretary at the Department of International Trade, I think, didn't get that at all, Martin Donnelly. When he made a speech at the Institute for Government, he really didn't see it as anything other than just a sort of, you know, an another skill you have as a generalist policymaker. Uh, I think that's changed. Um, the FCO has set up a thing called the Trade Policy Academy, which is taking cadres of civil servants, and I think offering to some politicians as well, experience on actually simulated trade negotiations. But simulate is the key word, because simulation is not doing the same as doing the same thing. What Department of International Trade are focusing on now, by and large, is the rollover trade agreements, the ones we need to stand still, uh, to replace the ones we have through the EU. Though some, uh, some people, I think, said they were slightly cut off at the knees on that by the announcement of the UK's no-deal tariff schedule, which made, uh, made some countries say, well, what on earth are we bothering with negotiating with you for? You've sort of offered this all through back door. So, uh, so I don't think we've quite got our coordination necessarily in place. One of the things, actually, I was quite intrigued last year. It was very un unexpected. I was chairing an event at the Institute for Government with lots of business organisations, uh, which was mainly... Um, mainly people saying about how worried they were about no-deal planning and all those sorts of things. But the one thing they did all agree, actually, was they thought the Department of International Trade had brought a new focus, the sort of work, not of trade agreements, which are a little bit of the party, but trade promotion activities, sort of activity done by UKTI. And that really had stepped up, because actually that's where most of the gains are to be made rather than on the trade agreements per se. I mean, you know, look at the sort of com comparative thing. I mean, you know, Germany and the UK trade under exactly the same trade regime, but they export loads more. And that is not because of different trade agreements. We both benefit from exactly the same trade agreements. So I think the DIT had sort of done some to focus that. And actually, I think one of the interesting things for the FCO is the model they now have in Africa, where quite a lot of the ambassadors and high commissioners in Africa are actually, because one of the big relationships is the development relationship, are actually diffid heritage things. I think one of the things the FT FCO is definitely doing better is being prepared to make its jobs open to a wider set of Whitehall skills than sort of regarding them as the preserve of people who've spent 20 or 30 years writing telegrams, which certainly when I was at the Treasury, we used to say, why on earth are writing these telegrams back? We could read it all in the FT anyway much more quickly than just read an ambassador's telegram telling us what's in the news anyway. So I think, uh, I think the FCO is changing quite a lot. This upcoming spending review will be very interesting. The FCO is already dipping. One reason it can beef up its Africa presence it is already sort of, you know, looking at the DFID money and thinking about how you can best use that, because DFID obviously has its protected budget. Uh, I think the spending review will be a really interesting test 
of whether the FCO does quite well on that. It's very small money, uh, but it's usually one that chancellors are very reluctant to uh, invest in. Go ahead, please. Very briefly, uh, you're absolutely right. Trade is hugely important, and there are some skills gaps. Uh, there are skills gaps across the scene. We have observed a number of politicians making statements about gap rules that are basically wrong. Right? <laughs> Um, they don't understand most of this stuff. I've tried my best. I, uh, in my role as chairman of Frontier Economics, we set up something called Trade Knowledge Exchange. Got some of the trade experts from around the world together to put stuff out on the web for free, explaining the basics, right? Uh, one of my key guys, Amar Breckenridge, worked for the WTO. He understands the rules, which, frankly, I kind of... I just cry about the stuff I hear most of the time, how ignorant they are about these things. So there's a basic knowledge gap, absolutely, and we need to try and fulfill that. The more general point you make about a foreign office, Jill would probably have heard me say this, you would expect a treasury boy, as Jill usually calls me, um, to say this, is uh, I've always wanted there to be more economists, more understanding about trade and business issues within the foreign office. And I think uh, if... As a byproduct of this, we get a more economically uh, professional and literate FCO and DFID. Uh, I would think that would be a massive advantage. But you're, you're absolutely right. We need to put this. But the one thing we must remember in all of this is the number one most important trade negotiation we will have will be with the EU. And that requires you to understand all the EU rules. And we have a lot of people that have spent a long time doing that. So that's one area where we are quite good. But yes, for the rest, skills gaps, we need to fill them. Thank you very much, James. Um, Philip Rycroft, ex of Cabinet Office and Dexu. So uh, recovering civil servant allowed my own view, I think now, Gus. Um, uh, for a small fee, I will give you my view quietly about whether Dexu was a necessary creation or not, but I did enjoy my time there. And I have to say, Jill, just in slight counter to your thing about Dexu, I have a downer on European experience. Actually, not so. I had round my table uh, folk, including myself, who'd worked in the Commission uh, as well as that crap. The sad truth was actually that the depth of EU experience in the civil service uh, wasn't as great as it should have been. It wasn't prioritised uh, in career development as much as it should have been uh, over the years. Uh, my question is a slightly different one. Um, Nick has referred to the economic analysis that Dexu led that was notoriously leaked uh, in January last year. That wasn't a good day uh, for me and my team, but then we stuck with it and was put in the public domain, pretty much the same numbers, all negative for any Brexit outcome uh, in November last year. Uh, also on no, no deal, I think the record will show when the papers come out, uh, the civil service has given a pretty robust advice on the implications of no deal. And indeed, a lot of that is in the, in the public domain, published by the government, not just leaked. There was a paper that we published in response to uh, a request from Anna Subri in February this year, which is a pretty unadorned description of the risks of no deal. So the stuff is out there in the public domain, driven by evidence-based uh, analysis by the civil service. My question is a uh, sort of speculative one. What happens to the civil service if it turns out that the experts were right? 
uh, in a circumstance, for example, of an ideal where things aren't quite as rosy as some have assumed, uh, and those problems do occur, um, what is the political pressure in those circumstances that the civil service might come under? I think at the end of the day, I mean, if, if what we said, which is actually the, the, the civil service, it won't be the, the civil service won't be under political pressure. It'll be the people who are politicians in the cabinet at the time. And there will at some point have to be an inquiry into Brexit, how we got the referendum, what the question was, how it was conducted, you know, why, we, why it happened, uh, how it was handled, um, the, the course of the last three years and, and beyond and everything else. Um, and uh, I'd expect you know, papers to be uh, released and if there have been warnings given um, and... Uh, uh, you know, um, obviously the, the economic analysis and everything else. I think there will be a lot of politicians that will be answering a lot of questions sitting in front of some retired judge who will be doing this for a considerable period of, of time. What the consequences are going to, to be of that, um, I, you know, I, I couldn't say, other than one hopes it'll be the usual, well, you know, it, it, one expects it'll be the usual lessons learnt. Um, one hopes it might be a little bit more than that. But of course, by that point, well, it doesn't actually help of the people of this country who are going through that. And the consequences are going to be for their financial security, for their, their jobs and elsewhere. And I thought one of the most interesting points that Jill made earlier on was um, Brexit is not just an economic thing. It's a values thing. And, and actually, I know from my constituency post bag that the people who believe in, or tell me they believe in a no deal, they, they, they um, WTO, um, they do believe when people talk about GAP that actually what they're hearing is, is correct. They are fed up with hearing from uh, the so-called experts establishment. This isn't going to work. And it's what Boris Johnson's tapping into, as we saw on the Andrew Neil interview on Friday. They are fed up with being told um, it's all going to be uh, doom and gloom and everything else. Because for many people, this issue of sovereignty trumps everything else. And I do have people emailing me who tell me it is worth taking an economic hit in order to be this independent, self-governing nation. And um, in a way, that's a sort of unarguable point. If people are prepared to take economic pain, then there's very little that persuades them if um, you know, people are warning about economic pain that's going to put them off that course of action. The difficulty is, of course, there are many, many people in this country who are not prepared uh, or don't want to go through that economic pain. Um, and so that's why the challenge really for the government is how can that be uh, mitigated, dealt with, uh, alleviated as quickly as possible uh, should, that, should that unfold, or what do you do to try to head it off in the, um, in, in the first place? And that's the, really the big unknown, I'd have said, for September and October of this year. Well, just to, yes, just, just a, a two bits of that. I think you're absolutely right about the values point. I think that's absolutely right. But then the debate needs to be, so you're arguing that you have more control outside. Yeah. Well, let's, let's analyse that. Is that true or not? And um, I think that's a debate that really hasn't happened as much as I think it should. Uh, the other part, of course, about the economy, and we've seen this already, it's that dreadful phrase we economists use, which is, um, you know, uh, this is what would happen uh, compared to what... Counterfactual. The counterfactual, essentially, what would otherwise have been the case. So, you know, people would say, well, hang on, the economy carried on growing and it did this and it grew at X percent, you know, and we say, yes, but it would have grown at X plus Y percent. Mm -hmm and we've lost why, well, you know, you've lost them, all right? And that's kind of, you know, as a former press secretary, I'd say that's not going to work as a, as a line. So that's the difficulty, I think, that we're going to have. I think, uh, I think Which is what Nick Crafts tried to explain. In I, think, I, think, I think the interesting thing 
is that the sort of, I think there's likely to be more political pressure on the civil service as opposed to on ministers if actually no deal Brexit is less disruptive yes. than people think rather than the other way around because that will then sort of play into the narrative that this was a sort of project fear, this was shroud waving and stuff like that. Um, and actually we know that uh, whatever happens with the no deal Brexit will not be exactly what is down the risk register. The reason to have all those things on the risk register is so you've identified the risks and you can manage it so that the medicines do come in, we can still have drinking water, we do X, Y, and Z. I mean, that's after all, because I don't think there's a great understanding of the sort of point of risk registers. And what will inevitably happen is that it will be like, you know, if you think of the sort of last big, much simpler thing that the government tried to do, uh, where the attention to the nation was focused, was the Olympics. And there were huge amounts of planning done for what on earth risk would manage. And, you know, David Cameron's having his daily meetings about that. And the issue that they had to manage was none of the security risk, none of the transport meltdown. It was the fact that there were empty seats visible in the stadium. And that's what ended up preoccupying people in the cabinet office was how on earth could they get people in there because it was really bad PR that uh, people couldn't get tickets and yet could see empty seats in the stadium for uh, sold out events. So there will be something that happens somewhere that people didn't spot, so there'll probably be a bit of a uh, bit of attention on that. But I think if it's sort of, you know, people can in the way exactly as Gus says, that they're sort of pointing to the fact there wasn't an instant recession as evidence that the Treasury, you know, was just indulging itself with project fear or whatever, I think that's in a sense sort of, you know, bigger risk to the civil service as opposed to ministers. Yeah. Nikki is absolutely right. The people who are in the front line for the negative effects and who will be you know, pulled down to urgent question after urgent question will be the ministers, not the civil servants. Can I just come back to you, Philip, because you made such, a, such an interesting question. What it seems to imply is you think that if, if there is no deal and no deal goes badly... You think it's the civil service who are going to get the blame, that there's nothing to stop that happening? It's a, it's a question, in my mind. It's a sort of ascription of agency, if you like, because you were predicting it wouldn't go well, was the, the, this sort of underlying suspicion that civil service hasn't put its back into the planning. And if it goes wrong, there's going to be a lot of folk out there looking for people to blame. That was my point. And no doubt, in normal course, of course, the people who should be getting that blame should be the politicians because they've taken the decisions. But in that context, the people who are sitting in front of the select committee are not going to want to say, uh, it, it was my fault, it was, it was me what done it, as it were. They are going to be looking for reasons why things haven't turned out as they have done. And it's just the, the, the temper of the times is such, and the, the politics is so febrile, and it is quite difficult to see yourself into that world, which is why I was just trying to prise open your thinking around that. I certainly worry about that. I hope I don't have to, but I am worried about it. different ministers in charge in a lot of key departments who will sort of, you know, defend themselves by saying, well, this is what my predecessor and their yes. civil servants did, not me. Because I think if you were there and you were a Chris Grayling or a Michael Gove who'd worked through all those plans, you sort of co-owned whatever the preparations had been. Whereas if you're a minister who's, you know, taken it up in July and just been told this is where we are and we're pretty much set on that course and we're ramping up back, you know, the plan we had earlier then, you know, and it really is October the 31st, then you won't feel the same sort of degree of ownership and be tempted to say, well, my civil servant said it would be okay. 
And I think that is a, you know, is a, that is a bigger risk than if you had ministerial continuity. Can we go to this gentleman here, please? Oh, if I go ahead, please. I'll come back. Thank you. Go on. Um, hi, uh, Mark Rivetti from the uh, People's Vote campaign. Um, so, uh, Andy Wigmore and Aaron Banks have been using very strong language in relation to the, the Kim Darrick situation. I just want to quote something from Andy Wigmore that he wrote on Twitter, which was that uh, when Boris Johnson at Boris Johnson MP gets the top job, we will drain the swamp, ridding the CS of types like at Kim Darrick. That's very slightly disturbing way of putting it. Um, I just wanted to put it to the panel, or ask the panel, do you think that the oncoming Johnson Premiership represents an unprecedented danger in that regard of politicising the civil service? Nikki, I think probably well, I mean, you're the best start. Um, uh, that is an appalling uh, tweet, but sadly not surprising from um, either of those two. Um, if they're not draining the, draining the swamp uh, somewhere, then they're draining it in, in MPs, uh, the Conservative Party, uh, you know, you name it. We've had attacks on the judiciary. Um, so uh, all of the elements of society. I mean, this is a systematic campaign organised by uh, those individuals, by Leave.eu, uh, by others who support them. You only have to look at the connections on Twitter, um, uh, watch the programme and the threats that um, the number of us faced, where this goes back to and everything else. Um, now, look, I, I think sometimes um, people, um, MPs and others, don't help ourselves. Uh, you know, there are things that we, we will do and we will say, um, uh, which want, nobody's ever going to love members of Parliament. Um, when I go to visit schools, I tell the story of how when the House of Commons burnt down in the 1830s, the good people of London stood on the opposite bank of the Thames and they cheered. So, you know, it's not new uh, that we are, we are not popular, but people do need to understand what's going on here. To answer your question directly, um, of course, that assumes we have a, a Boris Johnson premiership, which does appear to be where we are, are heading. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I think it very much depends on the, the, the Boris we get as, as Prime Minister, uh, the people that he has around him, and the way that he decides to uh, conduct himself in, in office um, and, and his government. Um, and, um, and the difficulty, I think, for people at the moment, I talked in my remarks about people not being able to know the future. Uh, the challenge, I think, for Conservative MPs, for, for Parliament, for, for the wider public at the moment is nobody knows how even the next few weeks are going to play out, let alone uh, the type of government we're going to get for the next few months. Can I just ask you, as, as you discuss this point, I mean, there are three, it seems to me as a journalist, there are three decisions that Boris Johnson would have to make in terms of civil service and public bodies, assuming he wins. The first is who is going to replace Kim Darrick yep. in Washington? Is it a political appointment or is it a, an ambassador? The second one is what is going to happen on Governor of the Bank of England, yep. which is an absolutely crucial decision yep. that will have to be made by the, the next Prime Minister. And the question there is, does the Treasury Select Committee simply have to accept what happens, or do they have a way of kind of grilling that so yep. that we get somebody who's not just yep. a political appointee? And the third question, which is clearly out there, is what is going to happen to Cabinet Secretary? There's clearly a lot of bad blood between uh, Mark Sedwell and Gavin Williamson. There's been talk about moving Mark Sedwell to Washington and so on. But I mean, obviously it's difficult to speculate, but can a is a quick move of Cabinet Secretary by an incoming Prime Minister acceptable? Just, just to try and pin down, I think, some, some concrete points here so it's not just a political discussion. Well, Gus will probably have a view on the, on the third one, but my, my answer on, on that uh, would be, I'm sure there, there, probably, there are times when there's a clash of, of, of personality. 
um, and um, you know, it's a question of, of how it is, is handled. I think it would be very difficult to move uh, the, the current cabinet secretary at this moment in time, given where we are on Brexit, yes. given all the uh, arrangements and the, the need for leadership in the civil service. I think there is a broader question about the fact that he is both cabinet secretary and national security advisor. Um, and um, it obviously depends on the threats facing the country as to whether it's right those two are together, or whether, frankly, you want two really good brains, each doing that, those, those jobs. Uh, in terms of um, the new ambassador to, to the US, um, I mean, I'm not against, um, per se, political appointments or actually business appointments. I think in certain jurisdictions, they might well be the right thing. Um, I would have said the important point at the moment is to have somebody who we, the British government, um, uh, is, is completely happy with. It should not be somebody necessarily, you know, the test is not who is acceptable to the White House. And I think if, that's, if we think that's the test that's been applied, there'll be very swift condemnation from uh, many, many people in this uh, country. Um, and then your third point was about the Government Bank of England. Well, we know that the interviews have already happened. I read today that there's a shortlist of 10, or, been, or, or they've, 10 have been through the panel. Uh, it's not been shortlisted uh, yet. Um, we do as the Treasury, I think that'll be a very difficult appointment for the new Prime Minister to interfere in, given the stage they've, they've got to. Um, but we, the Treasury Set Committee, we hold a pre-commencement hearing. So whilst we don't have a formal veto, clearly, if we as a committee would send a message back to government, we think this is the wrong person. Um, uh, that, I hope that would be listened to. Uh, I don't expect it on terms of the names that I see in front of us necessarily. But I, I mean that. They should all expect, whoever it is, a tough grilling, and I think they would expect nothing, nothing less. Um, but, of course, if we really felt very strongly about it, we produced a report, and that report can be debated on the floor of the House of Commons. Just correct. Sure. Um, I think if, if, if Boris were to become Prime Minister, the number one thing he'd really want to do is be a successful Prime Minister, and he'd do whatever it takes to do that. Uh, if I were advising him, and, uh, I'd say... That means you really need to work well with the civil service. I've never known an incoming prime minister from, and I, you know, I, I came in the doors of number 10 with John Major, uh, worked with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, and, and Nick Clegg through that coalition, who actually after about, sometimes as, lo, as little as 24 hours, is completely dependent on their private office mm -hmm. and is saying, for God's sake, don't move these people, right? Um, I think, and, and actually in terms of words, all the things that were said at Jeremy Hayward's memorial service from all of those prime ministers on the record, including Theresa May, which was, I think, a reference to the earlier question, uh, show their, their high regard for the concept of a politically impartial, objective civil service. So I think, you know, it, Boris would, would fail if he doesn't get that. That drives everything, I think. As people have said, it's really important to have people around you, good people around you. As we know, Boris isn't quite one for fine detail on occasion, <laughs> if I can put it that way. I'm trying to be a diplomat now, so I'm applying for all the jobs. Uh, um, and I would strongly say, uh, don't move your cabinet secretary. Um, stick with it, uh, because that cabinet secretary's been there a long time. The whole thing happened in very unfortunate circumstances, but, you know, I'd, I'd say go with that fundamental principle. You'll be a success if you have really good people around you. Therefore, always choose the best person for the job. And we have good, tried and tested, objective ways of doing that, which now involve select committees, yeah. which I think is I'm slightly sceptical about, but I have to say I think have do a good job in that respect. And, and I think they are a safeguard, actually, for that business of meritocracy. Yeah. Can I just add a couple? 
Uh, I think there's uh, another key job, which is who replaces Ollie Robbins. So I think it's how's Ollie treated is one of the things. Um, uh, and who replaces it, uh, replaces that sort of role as the chief whatever, negotiator on the civil service side, if there is one. So I think that's going to be something... It looks like he's going to go for Geoffrey Cox. Look it? like, well, that we assume is a sort of minister, and we've said this is yeah. ministerial-led, but it was always ministerial-led by the Prime Minister. So actually, yeah, what's that look like underneath uh, that? Yeah. Are there civil servants? So I think that's an interesting interesting question. And what happens to... You know, is, uh, what happens and how... How do they move Ollie on? I think it's going to be one of the tests. The other thing is, just on this Mark Sedwell and NSA thing, um, I'm slightly in a minority of one, that I think the real... You know, Mark Sedwell has an inordinate job because he is Cabinet Secretary. He would say he's not running the Cabinet Office in the way Gus did. Just John Manzoni's there, Chief Executive of the Cabinet, that Permanent Secretary of the Cabinet Office, who's doing fewer jobs than Gus, who was also didn't have a National Security Advisor at the time, so Gus multitasked, but Mark has obviously got Brexit. But the bit that Mark knows about in his job is national security. The bit that Mark doesn't know about is domestic policy. But Jeremy Hayward knew domestic policy like the absolute back of his hand. And I think the big sort of gap for the Prime Minister, if you're looking for another bolstering permanent secretary in the Cabinet Office, I think is to have someone who can run a domestic policy agenda and get that moving. You're facing a spending review, probably in the autumn, and that actually is where Mark himself would admit he does not have that experience. And I think, particularly with him having to focus so much on Brexit and the national security stuff, that is the big lack, is to have some really big hitter who can do the Prime Minister's bidding to actually get a domestic policy agenda back up and running, because that's actually been missing in action for the last three years. I'm going to have to draw it to a close. I thought it was a fantastic discussion. Um, may I say thank you to the UK and the Changing Europe, Catherine Barnard, to, on whom I'm very reliant. Also, Meg Russell, Constitution Unit UCL, thank you. And also, I'll, I'll say the IFG as well, just to pack in all the superb think tanks we have in London, of which we are very, very lucky to have. Would you please give a round of applause to our... Panel.